Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming Streamline Studios. <laughs> the state-of-the-art facilities oh. of Outlaw Radio, nestled in the soap-leaving hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature compete for your attention. <laughs> You're really kidding, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah, you can hit that microphone. I got to hit the microphone. Hit the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the program is produced by Magic Man Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Yes, you are. I am the manager to the star. Howard Lapidus is here. Yes, Fact checker Mark C.G. Boyer. Yes, he is. Yes, and I am. Joining us is a man who's done too much research on a too scary story. <laughs> Chris Cipollini. How you doing, Chris? Good. How are you guys? Well, better and better. My lovely. Man, you must have worked your cosmic butt off on this book. Diary of a Motor City Hitman, the Chester Wheeler Campbell story. Research intensive, rare pictures, behind-the-scenes dirt, parallel stories. This guy, what, murdered 300 people? Everybody needs a hobby, but that's a little extreme. Well, typical of uh, of media hype back in the 70s, they, they immediately attributed Chester to killing 300 people, but... Again, media hype. Uh, I don't didn't think do more than two fifty, huh? Well, <laughs> let's just say Chester, as I found, was even better at getting other people to do dirty work for him. Ah, Chris, Chris is Howard. You know what fascinates me that that uh, that uh, a guy named Chester, <laughs> Mister <laughs> Dillon. Yeah, no, seriously, a guy named Chester is yes. like the biggest mobster to come out of the Motor City ever. Well, when you know, I even put a chapter in the book about the fact and folklore of the mob, and, and of course, everybody hears of New York, uh, Chicago, Boston, Philly, Detroit. Even with the Hoffa situation, the mob never really, I don't think, got is recognized, and not that it should be glorified, but in the sense of history and economics, you know, Detroit had a hell of a lot going on. And so, so this you, guy, uh, as you said, a guy named Chester, who happened to be a black man who worked both sides, the drug lords and the Italian mafia, whoever basically paid him the most. He was that good. Well, yeah, so he was he's that good at everything, meaning uh, every racket going plus murder. Well, what Chester mostly was involved with was the heroin racket. Uh, it just so happened that most of his... Things, which, which were enforcement and yes, paid hits, had to do with the heroin trade. Which, guys, as a lot of people didn't know, uh, heroin was almost one hundred percent brought into Detroit by the Italians, and they would have the African Americans do a lot of the street dealing until they decided to, you know, we can do this ourselves, but. The Italian mob, don't ever let them fool you into thinking that, or anybody, that the uh, the mob didn't want to do drugs and the old school guys didn't want to mess with that. Oh, yes, they did. There was a lot of money in it. And a guy like Chester survived and thrived based on the heroin trade. Well, I'll tell you one, th- one thing about this is Burl. This, this Chester character, he's killed, okay, if he didn't kill 300, he at least killed more than a dozen, I'm sure, or had more than that many killed. But what kind of big mobster hitman keeps all sorts of detailed notes 
uh, with names, addresses, etc., like in his car, in the glove box. <laughs> I mean, that's stupid. Chester was Chester was a narcissist. I, I think that's a given. Uh, a lot of these guys sort of have to be. He was extremely meticulous and had a very high IQ. The, the problem with that is, is he was his own downfall in that he kept notes on everyone and everything, both in the underworld and, you know, everyday society that he thought was important, and he carried this with him pretty much everywhere he went. So, yes, when he got busted, wow, here's uh, 19 notebooks, at least, filled with this information. An interesting an interesting way of going about business. But let's back up a little bit, if I, if sure. I can. You know, we know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, New York and Chicago... Uh, even Boston being run out of Providence, uh, uh, we we kind of know how those the, the Italian mafia operated in those cities. And and you you come in and you're writing about Detroit, almost like well, me too, me too. You know, uh, Detroit's like a me too city. But how, how was it set up? You know, was was it under the the uh, the auspices of one of the five New York families, or was it run out of Chicago? Or did yeah, have, how did that happen? There. There were definitely connections, always, you know, New York was always the boss over here and Chicago over here, and they even had their connections throughout, you know, the decades. Detroit's Italian mafia certainly had their relationships, but what they did differently, at least uh, my colleague Scott Bernstein, who is also quoted throughout my book, who's written a few, you know, about Detroit, he's from there, had, had always said that probably the biggest thing that separated them is that they wanted to be more under the radar in general. Smart. And and it worked. With the exception of the the Jimmy Hoffa situation, they were basically under the national radar. Not Michigan's radar. Not the Midwest necessarily, but, you know, we're talking about nationally. It's the same with Lake Chester. I I mean, outside of... uh, Detroit, not that many people were familiar with this guy, and I think they should have been. Well, especially if he's killing people. Well, he figured it out, bro. Yeah. Chester figured it out. He said, well, what, you know, I'm sitting there running for the Italians. For what? You know, and as, as Christopher says, he's got a, a really, a, a, he's got a high IQ uh, and a, a, probably a decent uh, head for business. And said, well, wait a minute, all my guys are selling this crap. For these guys, we're giving them the money. So he became an immediate problem. You know, when Chester came out of jail in 1969, he basically walked into the beginning of a major shift in Detroit's underworld. It was around 1969, give or take a couple years, that a man by the name of Henry Marzette decided he was going to shift away from the Italians and give the blacks independence from that because he felt they could, particularly with heroin, deal it themselves. And Chester was basically walked out a free man into this world where he could work every angle and every side because by then he knew the law, he knew how to do assassinations, he was was a well-equipped guy. uh, Who was this individual? What did he do before he became a heroin kingpin? Chester or Marzette? Marzette. 
Marzette was a cop. Marzette was actually a very highly lauded cop. Oh, jeez. Yeah, in the 50s, he was a young... He and his mentor, William Frank, were carrying out just incredible movie-like drug busts in Detroit. And these were, again, we're talking about a time period where there was still far from civil rights being in order and a lot of racism. And here were two stellar black cops that were just taking down every drug dealer that was coming in or was already in Detroit. So what, they wake up one day and said, hey, we could be making more money here? It certainly seems like it was an evolution, but not over a long period of time. It was literally within a few years. Their, their, their spectacular bus, really from 53 to 56, but by 56, 57, all of a sudden, the other police were realizing there's a hell of a lot of heroin still coming into the city and it was some cops two of which were Marzette and Frank they I think they realized hey we can make a hell of a lot more money doing this than putting ourselves on the line and also, wearing the blue very true by the way you know, but, but, uh, <laughs> did they keep their cop jobs yeah for a while and then they were indicted and all of a sudden they were only considered uh conspirators but not really the importers it was a weird kind of situation and they walked and then they ended up busted in a giant multi-city bus they went back to jail William Frank basically his story dropped off the face of the earth something to definitely look into one day I might Marzette he went to jail for a while and while he was in there story goes he hooked up did some enforcement for mob guys and he definitely learned how to handle things once he was ready to come out in the early mid '60s. So, so Detroit, to those of us that uh, I, I did have the pleasure of uh, living there in the '70s uh, for a while, actually on the Windsor side where it was safe. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, and that's the only place, by the way, that uh, the United States is north of Canada. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you for your geography. Uh, I had to throw that in. But, but. Um, uh, Detroit known for two other major industries outside of crime, and that's the music industry, of course, and, and the uh, automotive industry. Is uh, the organized crime find its thread through both? Absolutely. Uh, organized crime, the, the economics of it uh, affects everybody, good, bad, and ugly. Let's be, you know, first of all, any racket. These people aren't all misers. They don't hoard the money. You know, the money will go into everything from their $2,000 pair of shoes to the cars, that, you know, the Lincoln or Cadillac that they're buying. So to that effect, it doesn't, of course, the music industry, you know, there's always been, you know, corruption. And, you know, Especially the music artists who are getting screwed, you know, and other people making money. As for Detroit... Though, in particular, when a lot of Southern African Americans came north to work to find a better life in Detroit because of the auto industry in particular, there were a lot of promises that I think people thought were going to come through, and they didn't. And when you leave few options for a certain segment of society, you're going to have people like Chester, who find another way, or a Henry Marzette, even though Marzette, obviously, it's a little different, but um, you look at even the Purple Gang, you know, the famous Jewish, brutal Jewish gangsters of Detroit, you know, bootlegging, that, they, that was their thing, at the time, the Jews weren't exactly welcomed, 
you know, and then the Italians took over every racket, and there were times when the Italians felt they had no, and I'm, obviously we're not saying every Jewish or Italian or black person does this, there's, there's not really an excuse, but there is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess no, no, it's not a rationale, it's a reason. You're making a great deal of sense. I'm kind of looking for, you know, and I was looking for the thread, and, and uh, you know, I'm thinking of some of the obvious things, uh, the the unions and the... Um, Certainly, the unions uh, in the in the uh, in the car manufacturing companies, uh, but then when we think about music, it touches music touches you know every American, and certainly the music that came out of Detroit, whether it was uh, Motown or Bob Seger, touched everybody. And, Absolutely, and in Detroit, Detroit is an iconic city. Period. I, I mean, what they what they've done and given us, and when. I decided to do this book and talk to my friends in the area and really get into it. I learned a hell of a lot about Detroit that I didn't know. And again, there's good and bad like anywhere. As for the like, some of the questions you're asking about the society, economics, entertainment, the underworld, just as New York and Chicago, it had its effect there too. And in some of the reasons some of these people got into that part of the world... Uh, the underworld is because all the promise that you would think was there wasn't actually reality for a lot of these people. No, you know, it, it becomes a limited option theory. You know, you can get out. It used to be back in the the olden days, for me, olden days, 40s, 50s, that uh, there were a lot of Jews in basketball. <laughs> a lot of Italians <laughs> in basketball. I mean, what what is your way out? Your way out is either sports or crime. It, it becomes that. It does. Now, you know, some people become a dentist. You'll get one that's, you know, a lawyer. But when you're when you're being redlined through uh, real estate, you know, pushed into basically ghettos made for the poor, white, black, Hispanic, whatever, when you're pushed out or you're not getting a decent, livable job when you thought there would be, and the economy starts to suck anyway at a, at a time, uh, things become bleak. And you will have some uh, people with a different sense of ingenuity. Chester Wheeler Campbell was one such person. Yeah, but I got to get you on, on Chester. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to deal dope or okay, I'm going to run numbers of this, but I'm going to be an assassin. <laughs> that, that takes you know, a whole different mindset, man. But it, it, this it is, is evil. It is, and I think that's a great question. I don't, I'm not in Chester's mind, and none of us are. But I think that also was an evolution. I don't think Chester woke up one day and said, I'm going to kill somebody. His, his history actually sort of led to it. Chester was a smart kid in school, and you think of the time period and being a minority. He actually made it through the ninth grade. Maybe younger people today don't understand. Back in the 40s and 50s, that was unheard of for somebody poor, number one or a minority to, to make it that far. And the only reason he didn't make it further through high school is because he started petty theft and ended up getting busted a couple times. He graduated to murder in his early 20s when they were trying to rob a numbers joint and somebody gave him a little resistance. He, at least according to him, hit the guy on the head with the gun and the gun went off. Now, whether that was the case or not, it's, you know, but after that, I think when he was in prison for 13 years in Jackson Prison, which was definitely a tough place to be, I think he spent a lot of time learning what he could do for a living once he got out. When did he start, when did he start the diary? 
Oh, it, it, the interesting thing about this, bro, it, I called the book Diary of a Motor City Hitman not because Chester had a diary in the sense of what we would think. I wrote it for two reasons that way. Number one, it ended up becoming like my diary of this guy. I became obsessed for a year, right? You know, once I decided yeah. to write this book. But number two, it was like he had a diary because he was so meticulous and kept mementos and yeah. newspaper articles and photographs. Uh, he jotted down everything from people's names to their nicknames to what color hair they had, if their eyes were cocked. He, it was like a diary, but a diary that like a serial killer would have. And don't get me wrong, and I try to clarify this in the book, too. Chester was not a serial killer, but Chester had that narcissistic <clears throat> ability that only somebody who could carry out a hit, like a Richard Kuklinski or, or you know, a, a Harry the Hook Alleman. These guys, you have to have some element of, of ego. And psych uh, psychopathy. Yes. And Chester just happened to keep lots of mementos from it um i it wasn't a diary in that sense now, but did you get to was. see these journals these notebooks he had yes the, the notebooks yeah uh what about them did you get to see them did you have access to them? i have i have pages from the notebooks i have oh wow between me and i got a shout out to my uh my lawyer buddy up there john Granke. he he helped gather so much hundreds of pages of grand jury documents uh court dialogue the notebooks photographs love letters wow it, yeah there's so much that we went through and there's still more i really and we'll get to that too about the second version of the book we can get to that after but um yeah there's there is so much that i've seen and going through these notebooks not only did it corroborate some stuff guys it also threw out a lot of crap that the newspapers yeah you too, too, being a true crime writer myself i discovered there's two sources you can always rely on one of course is newspapers the other is police reports Oh, just one second, just one second. You've written a true crime book? Yeah, yeah. Well, which one? Oh, don't stop that. Stop that. <laughs> he likes to tease me about sneaking in references to my own books in the show. <laughs> you like headshot? Yeah, no. like headshot no. or body count or body said kill. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll sell your book. All available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but am I correct that those are two things you have to doubt? Absolutely. Uh, I, want, I, I have to thank the Freedom of Information Act um, because that was a, a big deal. And yet, I, as you know, I went through, I mean, it had to be hundreds of newspaper, rare newspapers that don't exist anymore, these obscure articles around the country. Oddly enough, there were a lot about Marzette and, and Chester and a couple other characters like Frank Lee Usher that were from different parts of the country. It's just they were small little it was like needles in a haystack but each one compared to the other you start to put together a little bit like okay what's the bs here what was really the case and then you get some of the police files and believe me there were boxes of files on this guy that were covered in dust and you put it all together and I think we got a pretty good picture of him for the book. Now, did you I talk mean, to having the, not been is, there, and a lot of people aren't around anymore. That was my next question. Did you get to talk to people who were alive when he was alive? Uh, I got 
One of the judges that had him, she was just absolutely wonderful, great dry sense of humor. In fact, there was a kidnap plot against her when Chester, after he had stood before her. Um, uh, Judge uh, Alice uh, Gilbert, great. I also talked to one of his court-appointed attorneys who had a you know great story. But here's the best part, bro, and you may have encountered this. I'm sure you have every... The true crime nonfiction writer will. Five minutes after the book comes out, you start getting feedback and people coming out saying, "Hey, I was there." Yeah, yeah. Either you know, I, I have some stories for you, or "Hey, thanks for filling in." You know, the good parts when they add, tell, thank you for filling in the blanks, and other people like, "Hey, I can tell you more about this," or "Hey, I'm a relative," which is great. I mean, except, that would except it's after the book we, comes out. <laughs> Yeah, you know how that happens. I mean, it's like, oh, wow, I wish I would have had, you know, six months ago. But um, there were a lot of people that, um, not to sound morose, but there were a lot of people that aren't alive anymore. Uh, Thanks to him. When you're talking early 70s, there are just a lot of people that were older then that dealt with. You know, a lot of the judges and lawyers just aren't here anymore. And gangsters uh, tend to die in bad ways. That's an occupational hazard. So Uh, what happened to our hero? Our hero? (laughs) uh, Here's the thing. Now, if I told you that, if I told you what happened to him, now that would ruin the end of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, what happened to him was sort of a surprise to me and and my research pals, but in a way it wasn't. Let me just leave it at that. It's... It's it's not exactly like a climactic kind of thing, but it is sort of like oh. I mean, he didn't evaporate he, like Frank Matthews. No, no, he didn't disappear like Matthews. It was not that kind of climactic. DB Cooper, where is he now? Thing. It's more like okay, we knew where he was. I have his death certificate, but it it's what happened over a period of time. You're like, it's one of these things, guys that you go, hmm, kind of makes sense now, you know. It, there, in fact, I tried in the book to not maybe answer every theory, but I even throw some more out, like, hmm, maybe somebody else will find something out. Or, you know, maybe down the road someone else is going to dig something else up. Because Chester liked to leave mysteries. He did. And even in death, on the table... He left even a couple more. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but gotta, no, there's, there's a, there is definitely a reason he died. Christian, I normally, it's Howard, I, I normally, uh, the audience knows, I don't stand for somebody uh, <laughs> uh, saying, yeah, you know, read the book, that's how you'll find out the answer <laughs> to your question. I, 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 it really pisses me off usually, and I, I ultimately get the answer, and I still, and, and promise I will sell the book, because we do promise you we will sell the book. But for some reason, yeah, the way you just told that, I'm going to lay off. I'm going to let, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let the audience find out what happened to him. It, it, yeah. it's, it's, I'm not going to, I, but I'm going, I, I have to address the audience because they know that the second somebody does that, I'm on their back. But this time you're backing <laughs> this time, off. This time I'm backing off because I, just the way I can see this Yeah, build, the way he's this, sold this, it. And, and I'm, I'm good to go. Now I want to read the book and find out. <laughs> I really well, do. Well, I was, I was just testing you anyway, Burl. I want to see if you'd come at me. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's Howard, and I'm the one that goes after everybody. Yeah, no, because I, I, uh, I, I know. So, no, I tried to save for the very last chapter, Legacy of the Hitman is what I called it, because it, it's not that it's a big secret, it's just the way it was, it kind of makes you look back, and of all the ways you hear about gangsters, uh, they go out, 
this is not a way that you would have expected. And again, it's not climactic, but you kind of go, oh, and to be quite blunt, you might go, oh, shit, I can't believe, you know, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes sense. That's sort of how well, I want I want to know, he's, get, he's getting $10,000 a hit to kill people. People are paying yeah. him all expenses paid to fly somewhere and kill someone. I mean, uh, what yeah, I'll, kind of... I'll do it for the uh, For five and a half. Yeah, <laughs> and right down the hill. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, in, that, in that line of work, who is he bumping off? Is he bumping off rivals? Is he bu- bumping off uh, potential witnesses? Who, who's he shooting? That's a great question. Uh, most people who were in the area and other writers and everybody I talked to and from some of the evidence in his notebooks, Chester was a freelance hitman. He really was. Uh, what happened in Detroit, not to get a big story, it was basically split between East and West Detroit. There were, When you're talking about especially the heroin and cocaine trade, there were dealers who ran the West and dealers who ran the East, and yes, they crossed over and did business. Chester grew up in West Detroit, came out when Henry Marzette was starting his, you know, launch against the Italians. And what happened is he saw potential in working for whomever. Uh, I think a lot of his hits, well, most of his hits were definitely professional, though, don't get me wrong, he had a few that were personal. There were definitely a few personal ones. But for the most part... It was, okay, we've got a stool pigeon who's hiding out in this cop's house. Go find out if you can lure him out. He'd take notes on it. Uh, There's an east side dealer who didn't pay this west side guy. Go pay him a visit. It was that kind of thing. So Chester kept records of every hospital, every home, every license plate, every cop, every cop on a payroll, every kid who was uh, related to a drug dealer, you name it, he kept records. So so these but, records, Kristen, these records were not necessarily for posterity, they were working records he needed. It's almost like it's almost like a, a, a baseball manager keeping stats on everybody in the league so they know how to pitch to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. He wanted to know what people were up to, how they behave, some of them, and uh, where they'd be if he had to. And, and they weren't all the papers in 1975 when Chester really, when this really broke the news. They made it sound like 300 names. Uh, he was going to kill all these people. I understand media hype because I wrote, you know, I, I was a freelance writer for 10 years before I got into really the true crime part of it, and I, I know about hyping stuff. Uh, however, the are, you saying journal- is, are you saying journalists hype stories? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. I would never, I would never cop to uh, that. Just, no, just, we don't do that. Just um, checking. It, it does happen, and what I found is that in the notebooks, me and my lawyer going through them are like, hey, all these names are in there, but some of them were literally chicken scratch scrawled, or just a phone number. Like, yeah, sure, there were ones he wanted to know who the prosecutors were and where they lived. Uh, and that would make you scared if your name was in his notebook. I don't care if you're a good guy, bad guy. If your name's in his notebook, you'd probably be concerned. That part's not hype. It's just some of it 
was because he connected everybody, the newspaper reporters. He had some names in there of newspaper reporters. He wanted to know who was doing what, just in case it needed to be known. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's how I... No, that's how I, I read it. That's, that's how I see it. Yeah, I, I gotcha on that one. Yeah, I understand. I don't gotcha. I, un- I understand what you what, what I find peculiar, and I mentioned this earlier, but the, the more you find out about this guy, like when they raid his house and stuff, not only does he have all these records, these journals he carries with him with all of his stats and information, he's got, you know, 850,000 firearms, <laughs> illegal firearms yeah. in his house. He's got 40 pounds of marijuana. When that'll oh, get yeah. you at least six months in jail, not in Washington, but oh, then, it'd be, <laughs> then it would get you forever. Then, no, no, Burl, then in the mid-70s, that, that, that amount of marijuana puts you away for a long time. So, I mean, he's, he's skating on that, plus the fact he's, I guess he figures if he's killing people, so what if he's got 40 pounds of pot in his house? Well, that's, that's Chester, no, it's a good point. Chester was uh, definitely, he saw himself, as best I can tell, like a lot of the big tough guys uh, of any underworld they walk around with a certain air of uh invincibility chester definitely saw himself i'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist but you you guys notice too you you study enough of this you realize there there is a common thread these guys yeah their ego arrives in the room 20 minutes before they do in a yes. U-Haul. <laughs> yes, and does that gain you respect? Sure, but what it also does is puts another nail in a coffin that's eventually going to close. And I don't mean necessarily that, but, yeah. you know, prison. Chester was also a courier. <clears throat> Besides carrying lots of guns and cash all the time, he would pick up product. If, say, he had to visit some guy on the east side who owed money, well, I'm going to take your dope. And it's usually a lot because we're not talking about small-time pushers. Chester didn't deal with carrying small amounts of anything. From the book, you can see he had lots of guns, lots of money, lots of fancy clothes. He dealt in big quantities. He, uh, people have asked, oh, was he a drug dealer? No, Chester wasn't really a dealer as much as he was perhaps a middleman distributor a little bit, you know, or it was mostly like, hey, we need you to go collect this and bring it to us. How would this guy have done in New York? Would he have found his way into a family in New York? Mm, Interesting. Some other biographers and crime historians have told me that even the Italians out loud would not like announce, hey, we've got this black guy working for us, okay? Let's think of the time period, you know, there was, there was well, a lot of, you don't get me wrong, I, I think you guys know this, and a lot of people listening probably know this, it doesn't matter what ethnic group you're in, you always have to work somehow together at times, That that's a given. Yeah, but it, they go, well, we'll get the moon young to do it, you know, it, it was, you know, that's, that's the 70s, that's how that worked, but... It, I, right. Would Chester, though, have worked? I, I don't know, because even some of the New York families, they, it, I don't know that he would have been in a family. Look, they hated Frank Matthews because he was, he tried, Frank Matthews, you know, black guy tried dealing with the Italians in New York, and they were pissed. Right. Um, would Chester have? The Italians in Detroit allegedly loved to use him. Uh, because they knew he was good at what he did, but they wouldn't, like, publicly ever, not that they would publicly well, announce yeah, anything yeah. they do, but they <laughs> didn't like to say, hey, we have a black guy on the payroll. So he was never a made man ever, anywhere. 
No, was, no, and, and yeah. even with the African-American dealers, they knew, I mean, yes, he had some alliances. Later, uh, he had alliances with the Harold Morton group, which really rose after Chester was in prison for a while in the 70s, but he had about a year-long allegiance to them, but basically he was freelance. I mean, he just he worked for whoever was paying, and everybody knew he was good at what he did. Now, you mentioned, think, uh, you mentioned that he was a ladies' man. Now, I've never been a lady or even played one on television, <laughs> but uh, I would be, if, if I was a woman, uh, maybe I'm attracted to, to power, maybe I'm attracted to the wealth, maybe he was good-looking, but the fact that he kills people uh, so frequently, uh, I'd be concerned that he might, like, you know, bump me off. You would think that rational... I, I, a rational mind would, of course, <laughs> question that. Yeah. Uh, why would I be involved? Well, from what some of the old school guys tell me is that the high rollers like him, I mean, it does. You look even back, guy like Luciano or Capone. I mean, the lady, there are going to be people in general who are attracted to that. Uh, Chester being a professional assassin, and I, I suppose I should probably make this quite clear, from everyone I've talked to that was from that era, there was no mistake in what Chester did. It wasn't a secret. They knew this. You know, people didn't just think he was, you know, high-rolling gangster. They knew what he did. So there was no mistake. But interestingly, his main love interest was a co-owner of a funeral home in Detroit. Well, she, good for yeah, business. Lived, she lived in a, a nicer suburb, and that's actually where Chester got busted in uh, February of 75 on his way to visit her. And, but that was not his only one. Uh, he definitely had quite a collection of Polaroids of various... Mm. Now, should we define yeah. Polaroid for Boy, him, and, him and Robert Evans? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's a, Let's just say um, Chester was pretty good at manipulation and actually studied the art of manipulation, and he didn't just use that to coerce people through mob enforcement. He also coerced women uh, to do whatever he wanted. Well, along those lines, you, you study this guy inside out. What, what do you think is the most, whether it's personal or business, was one of the most fascinating ruses this guy pulled off uh i'll tell you what overall i think the most uh, the biggest thing about chester wheeler campbell is that he gets out of jail in 69 opens several businesses walks around like he is the king of the town and yet for five years he's hanging out in the whitest wealthiest suburbs Cops in Detroit know he's killed people and that he's on the street, They and yet he's rolling around literally in his big fancy car like he owned the world for basically five years while bodies started piling up, more money on dope being made, and nobody seems to notice until the night he almost takes a well, cop well, well, off. Yeah, well, what's this no one seems to notice? Are they being paid to look the other way? Well, uh, even the judge I talked to said, you know, I, I don't know how nobody noticed, um, you know, for all this time. This guy's had warrants out for him. He owns businesses downtown. He's cruising around in the most beautiful suburbs. 
uh, 30 miles outside Detroit every night, basically, to visit his girlfriend, and nobody knows. This Nobody guy's, noticed this guy's the, uh, the original diamond in the back sun rooftop. <laughs> yeah. The gangster lean. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he made some cash out of all this. Yeah. A lot. Okay, so what happened to it? Oh. Well, uh, when they finally caught up with him after this near accident and they brought him in, and the suburban cops from uh, Oakland County, which is uh, sits above Wayne County, which is where Detroit they started investigating his stuff, and they're like, wow, for 1975, having $8,000 in loose change on you, a couple bags Ooh. of heroin, and sawed-off saw shotgun, uh, 45 loaded with no serial number, silencers all over the car. <laughs> it seems a little odd for a winter night. And, it's, you know, and again, you, you think well, it was, was scary. And here's just this well-dressed, slightly cocky, uh, attitude, tight lip, black man <laughs> hanging out in an area that was probably not generally used to that. And um, once they realized this guy had a lot of money, they raided his house, they raided the girlfriend's house with, by the end of the, that month, and uh, they took $280,000 in cash out of his house. That's a hell of a lot of money. It is, and, and he actually, of all the legal proceedings he himself filed, he was very good. He could have been a lawyer. They that was the one out of years that actually a judge ruled in his favor, and it was already too late because the the Treasury and the IRS, you'll never see that money. And they scarfed it up within 24 hours of them confiscating it, and he never saw a dime again of what, that money. Wait, what, what hooked you into this? I mean, you, you you've been a journalist. Uh, uh, and you've written, from what I understand, you know, you've had a bunch of different beats, entertainment uh, being one of them. Uh, this is certainly true crime. But what is the thing that said to you and spoke so loudly to you that you're going to take, you know, a year or two of your life and dig into this thing? Uh, I'll tell you what. It was a couple factors. Uh uh, sometimes I believe the stars align. I, I, I had a, in my family, uh, there was law enforcement. I had friends that were, let's just say, the other side. I grew up with what I consider the good, bad, and ugly. Uh, I got a lot of it. I, you know, my dad taking me to see Scarface in 1983, and I was hooked on this stuff. I read all these books. Okay, we got to take a 60-second break, Chris. We'll, sure. be, we'll be back in one minute with more of Diary of a Motor City Hitman, the Chester Wheeler Campbell story by the book, and keep listening. We'll be right back. Taking time out of my busy schedule of writing 
true crime books. <laughs> I asked Howard Lapidus, I said, Howard, did you see me on TV Thursday night? He said, why bother? I can see you right now. <laughs> I, I was on Behind Mansion Walls where they did an adaptation of my book, Fatal Beauty, which you can buy and find out the things they didn't tell you on TV, such as why she killed him. <laughs> they left that little part out. Uh, <laughs> Fatal Beauty, she puts 13 bullets into her boyfriend of 15 years. She didn't have enough bullets to do one for every year, which was really depressing. You can also pick up Body Count, True Story of the Spokane Serial Killer, A Mom Said Kill, where Mom promises her daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends will murder her employer. Tell you one thing right now, as you all know, the kid never got the dirt bike. Ow! Tragic story! And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's return to True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio. City hitman, the Chester Wheeler Campbell story. Is that cough button working? Because I can't tell. I know. Oh. Do we have a cough button? Do we have a seven second delay? Hell no. Oh. This is this is real radio. I'm surprised I didn't get shot. I misspelled uh, Chris uh, Cipollini's name uh, on the uh, website. Yes, you did. <laughs> Sorry about that, Chris. Don't send Chester after me. That screwed yeah, me up. It's about throat wobbling. Yeah. So do you like Chris? Christian, what do you like? Chris is fine. Okay. I told him we weren't going to call him Christian because we're three Jews. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but hey, by the way, the old joke, three Jews, no waiting. That's right. Okay. Okay. Got that. So are we chasing the northern stars? Oh, it's a different group of three people. Yeah. So the guy, he's got a 44 Magnum semi-automatic pistol loaded with exploding bullets. Hopefully, they explode after he shoots them. Well, hang on, we were finding out. We were finding out from Chris how why he, he chose the subject. How, how he? Oh, that's his, right. Well, yeah. why did you bother? <laughs> yeah, why? Why did? I? It's a good question. Well, I, I actually put I put a lot of this on my wife because for years she thought I should probably write a book, and I love reading the true crime and nonfiction, and like I like you had said, I was an entertainment freelance journalist for about 10 years and I decided but to put it in the short term for about two years I was collecting rare photographs of, of mafia related stuff and I stumbled across a photograph of Chester Wheeler Campbell I bought the photograph and I'm like how come I never heard about this guy there was something about the look in his eyes, the outfit he was wearing. I'm like, I got to find out more. Why did I? It says Hitman. I'm like, why did I never hear of this guy? There you go. And I'm telling you, it was like I said before. If this, if you believe in that kind of thing, if the stars align, 
I called. I had a good friend who grew up in the area. I called him up. I said, John, do you remember this? He's like, yeah, let's see what we can do. I called uh, who ended up being my publisher. I said, Ron, do you, do you, would you be interested in a book on this? I think I'm going to write a book. And my wife said, do it. I said, I'm doing this. I'm writing a book on this. Now, and, you, 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 you know... Go ahead. You were no, it's a, ahead. It's a, it was an undertaking. You know, it's like but, writing the world's yeah. longest term paper. Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it definitely, it, it was something, but I, I learned a lot. You learn, and as you guys know, you learn a lot about yourself when you're trying to do something like this and get facts straight and, and put, it in a, put it in a narrative, I guess, that's entertaining. And at the same time, I hope people get something out of it. Well, I'll tell you, the amount of research uh, in terms of photographs and documents and everything, I mean, you really hit this, as we say in the in the Italian community, fell into a schmaltz pot. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's actually it's morphed into, there's going to be three versions of this book now is what happened. We've what, got, what is this, like Bob Dylan's self-portrait too? What are you, what are you, what are you, well, you know, there are so many parallel stories. It really, somebody, if not myself, is going to end up writing about some of this other stuff. I hope I brought some to light. But, you know, this version's out, the first edition, and then we're doing the ebook, you know, for the Kindle and Nook, which will have the 50-plus photos and illustrations. Got to give a shout-out to my daughter, Natasha, who did a couple wonderful illustrations in oh. there. Hi, Natasha. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she's listening. I don't know. She's somewhere. But she did a, a couple, and I gathered photos for about a year uh, the rarest pictures of the places, the people, um, and then the third version, the next version we put out in a few months is, is going to have all the pictures in print plus an extra chapter or two with all the little anecdotal stories that I have been told from everybody who sold Chester his fedoras to guys who grew up in the neighborhood because, as you know, again, People start to come forward then and offer some just a wealth right. of information. So you're not, but you're not in uh, Detroit, right? No, I'm actually from Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. So I'm I've Pittsburgh been to Detroit connection. a few times in my life. I've had a fascination with it. I have friends there, and it was when I realized that this guy was from Detroit, I'm like, I'm going to learn it and hopefully put Detroit on the map, and I don't mean in a bad way, but... It had quite an impact, guys, on the economic and social being of the whole country. I mean, for a guy like this to do what he did, that doesn't just affect, you know, one part of a one town. So, um, was, there, uh, was there anybody other than we've discussed in the, uh, on the other side of the fence that got caught because of this? Oh, yeah. Uh, in around 1970. 71 to there was a a cop by the name of George Bennett he was a he was a black cop who decided he was going to undertake finding out how much corruption there was in Detroit by the boys in blue and it ended up there was an entire precinct that was basically bringing dope through the front door selling it out the back or enabling certain dealers to do business while taking down other ones Again, part of the world Chester walked into when he came out of jail. What a lovely world to walk into. <clears throat> Sounds like Serpico. A land, land of opportunity. You could uh, be a- for a criminal, it was. And her- again, 
there was cocaine, there was marijuana, there were pills, but heroin was the drug that carried the most weight. And when I say weight, you know, I mean money. That was it. There were a lot of addicts, there were a lot of dealers, and there was a lot of dissent between even dealers that you would think would be united. It was, it was chaotic. So Chester basically had, uh, oh, he was busy. That would, I would imagine so. Of course, the problem is is that even though in their natural state uh, and pre-1923, this stuff was cheap. Uh, it yeah. wasn't until uh, you know after the Harrison Act and the doctors uh, got all skittish about the Department of Revenue, etc., that uh, drugs and crime got a link in America. Well, once you got that link, the prices went up where people had to commit crimes in order to pay for the stuff. It became so black market. It, it was, it, because by the time they realized morphine was bad, they gave everybody heroin. When they realized that was faster and more potent, they made that illegal. What did you have? A bunch of addicts already. People, and I'm talking everyday people, they yeah, were yeah. addicted to these. The majority of drug addicts in the United States prior to 1923 were white women in the South. Exactly. Well, thanks for the fact. Exactly. Yeah. And then when you have downtrodden people, for whatever reason, looking for an escape, you're going to have narcotics problems. You're going to have addicts, and you're always going to have suppliers for that demand. And that goes by, I put in the book, too, don't think for a second the Italian mafia was not involved in drugs, because way back to Jack Legs Diamond and Lucky Luciano trying to establish a heroin pipeline back in 1930. So this, it was not a new thing. It was just different ethnic groups grabbing on to what they could. And the, who suffered, though, from all of it was the addicts. I mean, that's basically where it is. Yeah, it was a ton of money poured in. Look, during that time period, and as I mentioned earlier, I spent uh, you know a, a lot of time in uh, in Windsor, and as a as a you know a, a, a white guy from Buffalo in my early twenties, I never wanted to go into the city, yeah, you know, into Detroit, because I was advised by my Canadian friends, you don't want to go there. It's right. it's a mess. It's scary. And it was scary. So, and this guy was running, the, the, you know, the fear factor pretty high. I know. I thought it, Detroit looked pretty spiffy in the seventies when I would pass through there. But when it got to the nineties, I wasn't too excited. Well, no, it's, about it. it wasn't. It, it looked, didn't look bad, but it was bad. You know, if, if I'd go over, I'd get it to Southfield as fast as I could. You know, but it 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 it, uh, it, it just was. It wasn't a. It wasn't a, a. What we considered to be. And for whatever reason, just didn't consider it to be a safe place to be. And that's mid-70s. No, and it was the murder capital or so. They like to throw that term around, you know, in the media. And it was. And to that effect, even Chester liked to escape it. He drove the 30 miles into the quaint suburbs, you know, all the time. And that's where his girlfriend lived. It was even gangsters, I guess, needed to escape. Yeah, at least he, he wasn't doing the smack. That would have been knocked off in the car. He wasn't up there to fish, but um, he definitely was was a guy who liked some of the finer things, which included, um, you know, a little R and R from time to time, because he still had human qualities. As you know, all you know, there's a human quality. But Detroit was a tough place. It still it still has a lot of a lot of issues. There are a lot of good people there, and there's a lot of history. 
I tried to bring some of it out. And sure, you know, a lot of it, obviously. Well, that's, the uh, that leads to my next question here. Now that you have taken the plunge from journalism to writing full-length true crime books and knowing the feeling of what it's like to... I always kind of liken it to those pearl divers who jump off the high cliffs in uh, South America. <laughs> the once, once they take that dive, as scary as it looks, when they hit the water, they're home free. Get your question. <laughs> and so the question is, are uh, you going to jump off the cliff again? Yes. Uh, unequivocally, yes, absolutely. I uh, I already have a couple ideas that have spun off from doing this book. Um, I, I already have a, a contract for a, a part of an anthology. I'm going to do a little bit on Lucky Luciano. I know that's been covered a lot, but I figured I got my chance. I'm going to write about him, too. Um, yeah, a little differently, but yeah, then we're, we're thinking... There's a lot in Detroit, and I, I think there's a few more stories even just there, guys. That uh, well, probably did, from all of the uh, those journals, there's probably some interesting names and linkups that uh, you probably found that haven't been explored. Uh, actually, I'll tell you what, and, and again, I don't like to give I don't want to give too much away, but uh, since you bring that up, there was actually a connection I I made after reading hundreds of pages of a jury testimony from, I think it was 74, where I dis- actually discovered a direct connection between the New York Mafia and a Detroit black drug dealer, and it almost floored me because I had never seen it, a, wit- like a witness actually going through and naming here's how and where these people met and here's how the heroin got to Detroit. So, yeah, when you say there's names and stuff that br- want me to investigate more stories... Oh, yes, especially after I made this discovery. Uh, I was. Oh, I yeah. Was- <laughs> Let's talk about this book, Cabral. Let's say, uh, no, we don't want to pre-sell it when he hasn't read yet. No, 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 not that. Besides, that. we're out of time. Yeah, I got to tell people about this one. Yep, yep. Diary of a Motor City Hitman by Chris Cipollini. It is getting rave reviews, and for good reason. It's kind of setting the standard of the research and crime industry. <laughs> well, and every rave out there is is reading the book. Yeah, yeah, they're reading it in raves instead of taking MDMA. Chris, come back and join <laughs> us again, okay? Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys, so, for having me. Get it in paperback and the ebook with bonus materials coming out soon. This has been True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio with uh, Howard Lapidus, Burl Bear, Mark C.G. Boyer. What's happening next, Burl? And uh, God only knows what matter of insanity.
Oh 